As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a guest that I have been really uh, nervous and also excited to have. His name is Rabbi David Wolpe. He is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple in L.A. He has previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary. I was almost a rabbi. I was almost your student. That might have happened in New York. Uh, the American Jewish University in L.A., Hunter College, UCLA. He's a weekly columnist for the New York Jewish Week. He's a weekly Torah columnist for the Jerusalem Post. Oh, published and profiled in the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, so many more. Uh, it's a real honor. Thank you. My listener. Such a pleasure to, to have be here. Rabbi here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today, I want to focus on one of my favorite books of this year, Why Faith Matters. Uh, the foreword, miraculously, is by Rick Warren, um, the very famous preacher. It is a wonder, this book, for a discussion on faith. Uh, we start in your early life, where you start out basically as an atheist. And I would love to hear where this begins and how all of that turned into you going to theological seminary and becoming a rabbi. Well, first of all, thank you again. Um, yes. What happened to me was... When I was, I didn't really think very much about God as a child. I just sort of took God for granted. And then at age 12, 11 or 12, I saw the movie Night in Fog, which is a Holocaust movie. And one of the wonders and limitations of being a child is you think things that you've discovered are new in the world. And I all of a sudden realized, oh my God, if something like this could happen, there is no God. It was that quick. And the force of it was so powerful that in my teenage years, I became a real devotee of Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist philosopher and a very persuasive one. And I read about him and read his books and thought him to be sort of the last word of wisdom on things until one day... Much later on, in my late teens, early 20s, I read a biography of his life. And this man who was so logical and so persuasive and so lucid and so witty made a complete mess out of his life. Um, the personality on the page was not at all the personality of the one who had multiple marriages, endless affairs, was estranged from his children, on and on and on. And I thought, oh, my God. As so often happens. Yes. I thought it's not true that he was as wise in life as he feels on the page. Right. And that began to open me to the possibility 
that God was more than an intellectual proposition, that God was a kind of lived experience of life. Um, and I still feel that way. You know, I've taught Jewish theology and I've like diagrammed proofs for God on the board. And nobody ever goes, ah, oh, now I believe it. It's something deeper. And until I was ready to get deeper, I wasn't ready to get there. I love the story about the uh, camp rabbi when you were 17, you were reading Bertrand Russell on your bunk yes. porch, and he came over and he said something about, you know, what are you reading? You tell him what you're reading, and he says, good, which surprised you. This one little interaction has seriously affected in such a beneficent way my relationship with my 16-year-old kid, I'll preface that by saying that, hmm. um, who was bar mitzvahed. You said, why do you say Good. You ask the rabbi, and he says, David, how old are you? And you say, 17. And he says, well, I'd rather have you grow out of him than grow into him. Exactly. Yeah, and it was... This has totally changed how I parent, by the way. It was very memorable. It's one of those times where even as a young person, you think maybe this person knows more than I do because of their years. And I realized that, you know, it is possible to outgrow lots of things in life that we think are forever. And it is a sort of bedrock. This is what the high holidays are about. It's a bedrock tenant of the Jewish tradition that people can change. Right. You know, in uh, Why Faith Matters, and by the way, I know you have a new book out, uh, David, The Divided Heart. I can't wait to read it. But I, I want to focus on the book that I've read in the book that's really changed me, as I do with my other guests. Um, you talk about doubt as an element of faith, and you even have a chapter called From Faith to Doubt. Yes. I would love to unpack this with you because I feel like this is an important element for all of us right now. So, I maybe I haven't thought of it exactly this way, but... It, in this conversation persuades me to revisit what I said before, which is before I saw that movie about the Holocaust, I never questioned God. But was that really faith? I don't think so. It was an unthinking assumption, which is not the same as faith. Right. Um, faith is to some extent a given, uh, not a given, but a, a gift, and to some extent a choice. And I don't believe that it is possible, for example, think of even your faith in another human being. If you really trust someone, you trust them even though you know it is possible to distrust. And if you don't know that it is possible to distrust, then your trust doesn't have any real meaning. So your faith in God is real in the to the degree I think that you understand and you feel sometimes isn't entirely there and you have to work for that faith. It's like Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav said he was a moon man. His right. faith waxed and waned. And it's right. all part of the same journey. I don't know what it is like to never have a doubt, but I feel like the faith of someone who has doubts is both more durable uh, mm. and deeper because yeah. they've gone through that valley and no new revelation is going to shatter something because they've already been there. And it gives your faith a, uh, a resilience that I think simple, unquestioning faith doesn't have. One of your elementary school teachers taught you, um, he quoted the Talmud saying, teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> right. 
on page 12, you say that acceptance of mystery is not an act of resignation, but of humility. And I think that is worth noting here for our listener. I sometimes think that division in the world is not between um, religious and non-religious people, but between materialists and non-materialists, by which I mean people who think that non-material things are real, that there is at the heart of the universe a mystery, not a puzzle, not something that we one day can figure out, but a true mystery. And if you believe that, then yes, it humbles you because you know, I'm not capable, given the fact that I'm a human being, of penetrating this mystery. As much as we learn, there will still be much, much, much more that can't be known. Um, And I think that that too is part of believing in whatever God is, God is something infinitely greater than whatever we can conceive. I sometimes tell the teenagers in our school, say, when you were two years old, could you imagine what it is to be a 15-year-old? <laughs> can't even imagine what it is no. you can't imagine. Right. So the distance between us and whatever God is is greater than that between a two-year-old and a 15-year-old. So when people say, I know God wants this, I know God wants that, I think that they're overestimating their capacities. You know, you talk about prayer in this book, too. I'm on page 25. Again, we're in Why Faith Matters. Um, You were ill for some time, and you talked about how when you go into the metal tube that will give an image or sickness or health, you pray. I do not pray because I believe God will give me a clear scan. I pray because I am not alone, and from gratitude that having been near death, I am still in life. I pray not for magic— but for closeness. And I circled this thing and I folded the page down really, really deeply. Hmm. And I turned to some studies that I'm engaged with right now pretty heavily in uh, a Japanese Zen school, Soto Zen. It's the exact same teaching. Wow. It's the exact same teaching. It's intimacy with oneself. It's intimacy with faith. And it's intimacy with a practice that is so utterly simple. Yes. First of all, thank you so much for that uh, comparison and uh, extending the range of my thought about these kinds of things. Um, But I think that it is true. There are things that we look to to solve problems, but that isn't so much what prayer is for. And in some ways, if it were for that, it would devalue the prayer because it would make it a technology and not uh, seeking or a dialogue. If you knew every time you prayed, you would get this response. So you would pray and you get the response and that would be it. But prayer is something much more beautiful and much deeper, mm. which is a yearning for connection. It's just like in this conversation, we will learn things from each other, but there isn't a specific takeaway. You don't have this conversation in order to get something. Right. You do it in order to enter the dialogue. Right. It's funny, there's a whole conversation also in this uh, Zen that I'm studying about when you sit to meditate, you're just sitting, that's all you're doing, you're sitting, you're, you know, returning your attention to the quality of your seat, to the quality of your uh, listening, and you're constantly noticing that your brain drifts, veers off goes over there, comes back here, goes over there again, comes back here. But each time 
you bring your attention back, this is the point, you're actually brightening the mind, you're creating that resilience that you spoke of, almost like elasticity in your capacity to return your attention to that which you're focused on. And it brings you closer to yourself, a generosity with yourself. And I think that's the same exact thing, if I may, that I used to feel when I was sitting in synagogue. I grew up Reformed Jewish. And I was sitting in synagogue, and I'll never forget seeing my mother every time they did the Shema. She would weep. It was so beautiful. It meant something to her. We never really talked about it, but except that it was her favorite prayer, and it meant something to me as a result. And that closeness is what I felt, not just to the prayer, to the rabbi, to the temple, to all of those things added to the sort of mystery of it, but to myself. Yeah. I think that the example that you give is a reminder that watching someone else go through the prayer experience can also be very inspiring for us. Indeed, indeed. And to see authentic religious models helps us be religious. I feel this sometimes when I read Heschel. I know that I can't be Heschel, but he's such an inspiring presence on the page. I mean, in person too, I'm sure, although I never had the chance to meet him, but he's so inspiring on the page that it moves you to look at the world a little bit differently. And I felt that with some of my teachers in rabbinical school. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a rabbi was because they were teaching what they lived or sought to live. You know, I had teachers at college who were wonderful teachers, but they would you know, you would teach a novel and then you would go and live the way you live. And the novel didn't necessarily make you different. But when you see someone move like that in prayer or you encounter someone who lives a certain way, that modeling can really change your life. Yeah. You know what's really crazy? I have a book for the last almost 30 years called God in All Worlds. It's an anthology of contemporary spiritual writing. It is out of print And I marked a whole bunch of pages and I put a note on top like four months ago. Remember to bring to Rabbi's podcast. (laughs) Page 433, Heschel. This is the one I marked. Crazy. Over and above personal problems, there is an objective challenge to overcome inequity, injustice, helplessness, suffering, carelessness, oppression. Over and above the din of desires, there is a calling, a demanding, a waiting, an expectation. There is a question that follows me wherever I turn. What is expected of me? What is demanded of me? What we encounter, and you talk about these flowers in your book, what we encounter is not only flowers and stars and mountains and walls. Over and above all things is a sublime expectation, a waiting for. With every child born, a new expectation enters the world. And finally, this is the most important experience in the life of every human being. Something is asked of me. Mm. Every human being has had a moment in which he sensed a mysterious waiting for him. Meaning is found in responding to the demand. Meaning is found in sensing the demand. So, first of all, 
Wow. extraordinary and thank you so much for reading that um, i marked it for you it's crazy that you just mentioned heschel we had no wait, conversation I'm, prior to i'm going to make it even even more i more crazy i guess um so i'm preparing now my final high holiday sermons because after 26 years as the rabbi here um i'm concluding my time as senior rabbi at sinai and can i watch online absolutely they're all all the services will be streamed Oh, I'm um, super doing that. So, for my Rosh Hashanah sermon, one of the things that I've been, parts I've been rereading for the theme that I want to talk about is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, of one of the greatest books ever written. Ever. Um, and one of the parts that I'm specifically addressing, and it has to do with the Rosh Hashanah sermon, is he says that the universe asks everyone, <sighs> you're addressed a question <sighs> by the universe, and how you respond to that question is part of the quality of your life. And it's exactly what Heschel is saying. And I think for the same reason is that great spirits really do feel like they have been asked. Yes. And they are living in response. It's not just an initiative. It's a response. Yes. Wow. Uh, do you want me to send you that passage? I can do Please. that. Please. By all yeah, means. I'll type it up and send it. Um, my little hairs on my arm are standing on end. I cannot tell you how much I look forward to watching you give your final sermon. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I'm not going to go to shul. I'm going to stay at home and make it very holy, get dressed up and everything. Um, does evolution determine our choices, you ask, on page uh, 28? It's a really interesting question, and I wanted to talk about it with you because I think what you say a little further on in the book about every generation coming into sort of the story halfway you're entering midway you're never right. going to know the beginning you're never going to know all the nuances um what it, what is your thought about this does evolution actually determine our choices what does evolution does provide a frame um you know uh, chesterton the roman catholic theologian novelist uh he said that the most important part of any picture is the frame and evolution does provide a frame like i will never be able to fly and there are other things that I can and can't do. I won't be able to see the world, you know, with the night vision of, but within the frame, evolution has given us and God has given us in different ways, the ability to transcend our own limitations. So to take a simple example, um, evolutionarily, when somebody hits me or hurts me, I want to hit them back. But spiritually, I can transcend that. It may be that evolutionarily you have desires, whether they are desires for another person or sometimes desires to avoid another person, and you can transcend that. When you see people taking care of the sick, that's yeah. a transcending of the desire to avoid sickness and contagion and so on. And so what I would say is that evolution is, is important but not determinative and that the more we progress in lots of ways, the more we have the possibility of transcending the nature of human beings um, and fulfilling the spirit of human beings. Mm. We talk about also in your book uh, of the Bible how it gives no account this is so fascinating to me of how Abraham came to recognize God. 
Yeah. That sort of step is shrouded, as you yeah. say, in mystery and silence. And the ancient rabbis rush in with tales to fill the void. One story compares Abraham to a traveler, sees a palace in flames, cries out, is there no one responsible for this palace? I see, This is like right now in mm-hmm. our history, right now. From an upper window, the owner peeks through to assure the frightened traveler that he is responsible. <laughs> The palace has an owner. Yeah. Similarly, Abraham, seeing the carnage in the world, wonders if the world is uncared for, and God comes to Abraham in response to his cry. But the twist in this tale, you say, is that the Hebrew for in flames is doleket, which can also mean full of light. And here's where 2022, we step in. Yes. Um, can we see the world as a cauldron of injustice, a blazing fire, or a brilliant light, a palette of beauty, as you say. This question, I think, is kind of resting on all of our shoulders right now. And we have to see it as somewhere between both, because if we don't see the blazing fire, we can't respond. But if we don't see the palette of beauty, we can't exist. So, I just returned from Africa, and I'm going to be talking about some of the experiences on the high holidays, but two things I did was, one, I was in Rwanda, Mm. where 20, what, seven, eight years ago, they had a horrible genocide, and they're putting their country back together, and you see very clearly the contrast of Doleket. The place was on fire. Terrible, terrible things, unspeakable things happened. And at the same time, they are trying so hard. And I mean, I spoke to many people there, everyone from taxi drivers to the president. They are trying so hard to create a palace of light. And from there, I went to Ethiopia and I visited a refugee camp. Mm. And there, too, I mean, they have one doctor for 69,000 people. The place is on fire. You know, the malaria spreads all through the camp. And yet at the same time, the examples of people I met there in their resilience and their spirit and their hope. And the person who brought me to the camp was this kid. I mean, he's in his 20s. He's not a kid anymore. But this kid who was the first person in his world to go to high school, much less to college. Now he's in college at NYU Abu Dhabi. And he is filled with the passion to uplift other people in the camp that he came from. And so you felt this exact contrast so powerfully. Here's this terrible situation, and here is this beautiful promise of light. Um, What a world. What a world. What a world. You talk just a little bit later in in this uh, part of the book about how your cancer experience brought you moments of literally intimacy and love you wouldn't have otherwise known, not just with yourself, but with other people. Um, And you talk about how suffering, I'm on page 33, 34, can open the soul. And I want our listener to hear this because suffering, in your words, can enable us to be close to others in a new way. And most experiences of life carry both meanings of doleket. They are light and flame both at once. Yeah. Um, if you're listening to us and you are suffering in any way right now, please know both things are present. 
one does not overshadow the other. I mean, I have been, I suppose, privileged in some way to see a lot of suffering because as a rabbi, you know, you see a lot of suffering. You end up doing funerals for children and you see their parents suffering and you recognize that it's that the human heart when it experiences this pain mm. almost never has a soul experience of bitterness and closing it is astonishing how often it also leads to openness and love and that doesn't mean for a second that it was worth it, or that you're glad for it, or any of that. It's incredible how often that is the case. I mean, on a much less extreme level, people look back on the periods of their life when they were struggling with great fondness. Yes. You know, remember when we were we were just starting out and we were making it together, um, because there is something about effort and trial, and in the Franco book that I mentioned, which I'm going to talk about. He says that there are three things that give life meaning, work, love, and suffering. Hmm. And I think that that's exactly so. To be engaged in some task, to love someone or something, and to suffer and to have the drive to make your suffering matter. I'm remembering somewhere in the book, I don't remember what page exactly, but you talked about sitting with a child whose illness had somehow like it was a test for him and his family his parents were desperately trying to make it understandable and justify it for him mm-hmm. and you took him into your office and you sat with him for almost 15 minutes in total silence yeah and you gave him the gift of your silence i think you said something about how the whole thing felt like such a magical sacred mystery and then he finally cried. Yes. After no tears had come out of his body. And from that moment, his family and he learned how to live with what was happening to them. It's so beautiful. It is often the case that, especially adults, I mean, we do this to each other, but especially to children, we just talk at them and we tell them how they should feel or how they should react. And they'll often take it. But that doesn't mean it's real. And sometimes just presence. I mean, I learned this from Job. Job's friends don't turn out to be great friends in the end. But at the beginning of the book, after he suffers, they sit with him for seven days and don't say a word. And the rabbis praise them for that because all he wanted from them was their presence. There's nothing to say when something truly terrible happens. And so... The words can always come later, but at the moment, you just have to sometimes just hold a space for the feelings. Mm. I wonder, I know you have one child. Is that true? How old is she now? She's 25. What do you think, for the parent listening, what do you think is the really, like, the top few things or best thing that you did when you look back on your parenting? She must be incredible. Um, what did you do right? So I think it certainly was not just me. I think what both her mother and I did right and others in our life were, first of all, from the time she was little, we took what she said seriously. 
we didn't always agree with it. We didn't always confirm it. We didn't always say, oh, that was smart or that was wonderful, but we took it seriously. And if she had opinions about the world, we listened to them and we didn't dismiss her as being foolish and childish. The other thing we did right, and here I'm going to quote a children's author, Joan Aiken. She says, anyone who doesn't read to their child doesn't deserve to have one. And every <gasps> wow. night, every wow. night, one of us would read her uh, some book, some story. And in fact, if you ask my daughter, she will tell you that one of the great joys of her life was growing up in real time with the Harry Potter books. Because when she was young, we would read them to her, but then she grew old enough to read them for herself. And when the last one came out, I waited with her at the bookstore until midnight when they were released. And we went in and got a copy and she spent the rest of the night reading that book. And so she very much lived those stories. And to be able to live stories and for them to be meaningful, um, I think that also. And then thirdly, I hope that we modeled goodness because it was more important to me that my child was good than that my child was smart or accomplished. We were lucky. She is smart and she's accomplished, but I cared much more that she be good. By good, I think what you're saying, if I may, is to be kind. Yes, that's exactly the word, kind. Yeah. yeah. Kind. I mean, she. I, I, we've had this discussion about how would you have reacted that if I had been a mean person? And I said, that would have been the hardest thing for me, by far, by far. I uh, think that kindness is the single most important quality for someone to possess. And in terms of living a good life, the single most important quality, I think, is to have courage. And sometimes one requires the other. Right. When it comes to uh, prayer... I'm going back to that because I do feel like it's a really important facet of our existence right now. My listener is probably somebody who prays or or is questioning whether prayer is actually something that needs to happen in their lives. On page 141, you say that deep prayer is an experience like music or love, indescribable to one who does not pray. Prayer works through you. To be carried away is to be in prayer. To be expressively in touch with something greater is prayer. Prayer is not the same as poetry. Prayer is directed to God. Hmm. I may read a poem in glory and its imagery. When I recite a prayer, I am grateful for having been heard. I would love to talk about what God means to you. Um, I know what it means to me, and I'm still in some kind of masculine paradigm by some crazy notion, but that's just where I'm at. Um, I truly believe in God. I also believe in all the teachings of the Buddha and other studies that I'm engaged with, but I love listening to people who teach God talk about their relationship with God. My I mean, to the extent that I have a conception of God, I think of God very much the best, like, short capsule expression is what Martin Buber said. He said that God cannot be expressed, God can only be addressed. That is, I can't tell you what God is, 
but I can give you practices that will orient you towards the dialogue with God. Because as soon as I describe what God is, I'm putting God into conceptual categories that don't really fit and are limiting and are the size of our minds and capacities. But I do know that I have had experiences where I felt God present, often in prayer, and I can't, in the same way that if I told you about somebody in my life, I could describe them a lot, but you wouldn't know them nearly as well as if you met them for five minutes. There is something about the actual encounter that is so much deeper than any description of the encounter. So my conception of God is the God who is essentially always available for human beings to encounter. Mm. Thank you for that. I feel like that's a really good place to close. Um, there's so much more that I wanted to talk about, but I, I think I have one other question, and it's a bigger question and maybe for some part two someday. Yes. Religion causing war. We talk about this in this book, Why Faith Matters, uh, pretty extensively. And you make the case for the fact that it's not religion or belief in God that starts wars. It's men, uh, people. Um, mostly men, but okay. Mostly men. Just <laughs> Let's to be, be fair. honest. <laughs> Let's be fair. Mostly men um, just trying to get more. Yes. Trying to be right and prove their rightness. Um, I would be very interested to hear... I've read the book, so I know, but interested to hear and share with our listener, how is the the precursor to all of this religion? There was war before there was religion. Monotheism only came to this world, whatever, 3,000 years ago. Talk to us about, just, yeah, remind us. I'd make two points about it. The first is, it's very, very, very rare for someone to say, oh my God, there's a people across the world who believe something we don't believe. Let's go get them. It's almost always a battle about resources, about money, about land, about something else. And then religion gets added into the mix. But that's not where it starts. And the other thing is that religion is in some way a supercharger. By which I mean religion can make people much kinder. There are people all over this world who do charitable work because they believe God wants them to. And they're good people, but they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't have this religious belief. But it also supercharges bad sometimes. And there are people who have an additional hostility. Maybe they would have hostility anyway, but they have an additional hostility because they add religion to the mix. So I really think it's the kind of religion and how it's practiced that matters most. It's not that religion causes war. It's that when there's war, religion adds a component of divisiveness that might not have been there. But I know, having traveled this world, almost everywhere I've gone, I've met people who are doing extraordinary kind things that will never make headlines and nobody knows about. You know, you hear about Doctors Without Borders, but there are all sorts of religious groups who are much larger, who do much more good across the world, but people don't know about them because they're religious groups. Um, and the stigma. God can motivate you sometimes to bad, but often to good. And if there were more good religion in the world, it would be a better place. 
Last question, I promise. The stigma that is associated with religious fervor is what bums me out. Yes. The most. Because I feel, whenever I see, I was in Turkey and I was watching people pray at the mosque and, oh my God, it moved me to tears every single time I would yep. hear the bells. I've been everywhere. Mary Magdalene uh, churches in France. It doesn't matter. Italy, oldest churches. Every time I see people prostrating themselves in any way, it moves me to tears. And I feel like we're all telling the same story. Yes. And by the way, you know, sometimes on Martin Luther King Day, we have a gospel choir here at the synagogue. Stunning. To help us wow. celebrate Martin Luther King. Wow. And that's fervor that it just, it rocks the house. Um, and if you could see inside the lives of most of the people who have religious fervor, I think the fervor would move them as it, as it moves you. Because um, it's really, it, it's a moment of, heart opening and heart elevating and we could learn a lot from it we who are in our sometimes way too rigid way too stultified um and often unpassionate lives and way too comfortable i would argue yes fair enough yeah i want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today thank you thank you and a great pleasure yeah, I'm going to reach out in a few months to go through uh, a couple of your other books, too, because everything means a great deal to me. And thank you so much thank for you. your time. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens, 
com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.